Ladies and gentlemen, we're continuing on in our God's Not Red series today, and it's going to be a fun one today. Uh, strangely enough, this is one of the most requested verses I have received that we're going to talk about today, and uh, all the people who requested aren't here, so they get to watch it later. It's going to be fun. Here it is. Well, first, before we even begin this, what was I going to say? Uh, this is an interesting verse that you may not know a ton about, but it's called the ordeal of the bitter water. Has anyone here heard of this section of scripture? Yeah. It's a fun one in the book of Numbers. Let's read it together real quick. All right, so it starts out like this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Then the man shall bring his wife... Oh, nope. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it onto the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the priest shall make her take an oath, saying... If no man is lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanliness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. This water that brings this curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen and Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off in the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall weave the grain offering, wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain and her womb shall swell and her thigh fall away and the woman shall be a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in case of jealousy when a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man who is jealous of his wife. Then he shall sit the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all of this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. fun section of scripture, right? Yeah. Now, we all know the obvious takeaways from this one, right? We just walk out of there. We can see right how this just ties into things that we deal with all day today, right? 
Uh, no, yes, no. A couple of interesting things. One being this. This is, first of all, a trial by ordeal. Does anyone know what those are? You ever heard of them? They were really, really common back in the day. And I guarantee you've heard of some of them. One of the most obvious ones, if you are anyone who follows pop culture currently, trials by combat in Game of Thrones or trials by ordeal. Something that is not related to the event in question. It's not a let's bring proof of what has happened in this way, shape, or form, as in we can see this or we have these witnesses here. It takes an unrelated thing and uses that thing to determine someone's guilt or innocence, right? So trial by combat is one. Here's another one that you may actually know. This is the video. It'll take a second. Sorry, this is a very tricky video. We have found the witch. Might we burn her? But you are dressed as one. They dress me up like this. <laughs> and this isn't my nose, it's a false one. Will? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she's a witch. <laughs> did you dress her up like this? No! 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 no. 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 Yes. 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 A bit. A bit. A bit. She has got a wart. What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. We got better. Murder anyway! There are ways of telling whether she is a witch. Are there? Well, they tell us. They hurt. Tell me. What do you do with witches? Burn and what do you burn apart from witches? More witches! Good! So, why do witches burn? Because they're made of wood. Good! Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, how do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her. Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, uh, does a wood sink in water? No, no. no it floats. It floats over into the pond. <laughs> what also floats in water? Bread. Apples. Uh, very small rocks. Cider. A great gravy. Cherries. Mud. A churches, churches. Lead, lead. A duck. Lead. Exactly. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore... A witch! A witch! Sorry. Yes. No, this sermon was not an excuse to just show that clip, but I do enjoy it quite a bit. All right, there you go, Jake.
trial boy ordeals were common in the area, era of uh, uh, witch, witch trials, actually. Uh, and while that logic is hilarious and wrong, the basic premise that they got to was actually one of the trials they would use for witches. Throw them into a, a, a lake tied up, and if they float, they're obviously a witch, and therefore you have to kill them. With the corollary being, if they're not a witch, oh, she died, she must have been innocent, basically, okay? Uh, trial by ordeals were a way to attempt to ascertain guilt or innocence whenever you had no idea who was actually right or wrong. Uh, and often they were carried out for extremely bad purposes, and oftentimes they were used pretty heavily just to persecute people throughout history. So trial by ordeal is rough, right? Why is there one in the Bible? One, this is the only trial by ordeal in Scripture, by the way. Uh, and strangely enough, this trial by ordeal, as one of the laws given by God, it falls within those 613 commandments that come in the Old Testament. And this one is almost unique. Uh, people who wrote the Mishnah, one of the Jewish uh, scrolls that taught and explained or commentated on Scripture, say that this is the only law where someone is brought before God for judgment, and he is the one who brings that judgment, not people. Of all of them, this is the one. Otherwise, people judge, right? Do not murder. Does someone murder? Yeah, that person's dead. All right, kill them. People do it, right? This is the one where it does not take human judgment. It does not take human intervention or interaction. It's all on God, which is interesting. Why are we talking about this today? Why read this scripture? Does anyone know why this is a worthwhile scripture for us to read and know and understand and work through? It's actually used fairly commonly today, though not in a place you would generally expect. Anyone know where this is taken or often used it? No? Uh, the biggest place you'll see it is on either comment boards or social media posts or things explaining that scripture at times is pro-choice. They're arguing this is a way that you can argue that scripture has instances of abortion in it. Now, whenever we talk about things like this, one thing we have to understand, this is actually the first point of the sermon. We need to admit when we have biases whenever we read Scripture. We have to admit when we have biases. So I'm going to explain to you some of my bias right now and explain to you that I am attempting to work past my bias. I am pro-life. If you would like to know why, I can speak to you about it at length. Otherwise, uh, I can walk you through why philosophically, ethically, and uh, theologically I tend to hold to a pro-life position. But that's not really why we're here. But you guys know my bias. I am pro-life. So I'm obviously not going to be inclined to read this as a pro-choice piece of scripture. And it's not. I examined my bias. I verified that it wasn't causing issue, and it's not. It's just not a piece. See, they often hold that whenever it says a woman's thigh falls away, you guys heard that section in there? It was kind of weird. Her belly will swell and her thigh will fall away. They're arguing that that thigh falling away is a euphemism for a miscarriage. That this, pro this actual trial causes miscarriages in people. And therefore, they were using something in that almost potion that the priest was supposed to put together that could cause miscarriages to happen. Okay? 
Uh, no. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches that. First of all, thigh falling away is not a euphemism for miscarriages. You know how we know? Because the Bible talks about miscarriages in many other places in the Old Testament, specifically times whenever someone, like, takes a pregnant person and causes her to miscarry. They use the word for miscarriages. They didn't use a euphemism for that. They just stated it. Uh, now, thigh is often used at times as a euphemism for private parts. And if you take away as opposed to being gone, more like out, you might have an indication of what they were claiming would happen to a woman if she was guilty. The medical term is prolapse, I believe. Okay? Uh, it says her womb would swell and her body would prolapse. Uh, go ahead and look that one up later if you want to. Safely. Make sure safe search is on if you do. But, okay, don't look up that particular thing. If you need to go to definitions and figure out what it means, because I'm not being clear enough, like go to dictionary.com and search the word, and that'll teach you. But don't actually search that now that I've said it. That could be horrible. Anywho, sorry for making you laugh. Don't do it. I should have thought my way to explain to go to dictionary.com a little better before talking. Anyway. It doesn't talk about that. To assume that this is a pro-choice piece of scripture is to make several different assumptions. One being that everyone who is brought forward in this trial is guilty, right? That's a pretty bad assumption. The other one being, they're assuming the people who are undergoing this trial are pregnant. That's never stated. It doesn't say anything about pregnant people. It just says if you believe someone is having an affair, this is what you can do. This becomes what's called in the Mishnah, the trial of the Sota, or the one who falls away. Uh, while this is a relatively small portion of scripture that we don't actually spend too much time thinking about, in the Mishnah itself, which is a, in the Talmud, this big section of, of commentary on scripture, it's one of the biggest uh, things you can look at when you're trying to figure out how medieval and ancient Jewish people interpreted scripture, there's an entire section on this. 15 chapters long discussing what this means and the implications of this particular portion of scripture. We're not going to dive too heavily into that because they have a bunch of whole weird things in this one. For example, whenever we actually read this scripture, it says nothing about the person that the person is accused of having an affair with, right? But in the Mishnah, or in the Talmud, I'm sorry, it's a different book. In the Talmud, uh, they actually say that if a woman is undergoing this trial and she has this happen to her, it will also happen to the guy who she was unfaithful with and he will die. Like, that's interesting. Why do they only put her through it? Different question. They've got different things about why, uh, when you were allowed to do this. So, for example, this is, please note, later commentary, so it's not quite what the authors are writing, but it's worth knowing how people interpreted this over time. They would do things like, if you have an initial worry that someone is having an affair, your first thing is not to do this. You say, are you having an affair? No, all right? And the second thing is if they uh, are seen in private with a person, like a man or a woman, and you don't trust them with that person, then you tell them not to be in private with them anymore. The husband would, right? And then if they continuously meet in private beyond that, even though being told I don't like you being there with that person, then you come to this trial, all right? It was like a last resort for something fishy is going on. I don't quite know what, but it's not good. 
and it generally talks that there's a whole bunch of marital strife that's involved beforehand. This would not be a, oh, I just wonder, hey, what's going on? Thursday, we should probably check. Let's go down through the bitter waters, just to verify, right? No, it was a relatively big deal. Now, it's worth noting a couple other things. Where are we at? Oh, this is, let's go through this again, all right? So God is speaking to Moses. And he says, speak to the people of Israel. If anyone's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if she has an affair, and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she's undetected, this is how you can know. Why do you think there would be a weird thing in there about how if someone is having an affair and you can't know, this is how you can know? Why would it be important in their culture? Huh? Having... Yeah, and it's relatively hard to have two witnesses to something like this happening, right? Oh, yeah. Did two of you see them? No, but I, I totally did. All right, that's not enough. Be another person. Keep an eye out. That's one section of it, but there's another one too. This whole section of numbers is written in a portion that is fully based on this concept of how to make sure that the community of people retain their holiness. And so the initial portion of this is actually a portion of uncleanliness law. It talks about disease and what you're supposed to do if someone has disease, man or woman. If someone is diseased, you are to set them out of camp. Move them away from everyone who is not diseased to protect the integrity of the community, right? The next section is the section that talks about what do you do if one person wrongs another or harms another or hurts another. And the concept is if someone harms another, you have to make restitution with additional penalty. And if that penalty is not available to be paid to that person for some reason, that penalty goes to God. You still pay a penalty for it because the people aren't supposed to be hurting each other. They're supposed to be protecting the community. This is the next thing that can harm a community that's spoken of whenever people are having illicit affairs within community. And pretty sure most of us can relate to the fact that whenever that occurs, it can harm community pretty badly, right? Who here has not seen a community broken by an affair starting? Has anyone never witnessed that? All right. It happens even now, right? And so, these are things that can break the community and cause an extreme peril that could literally fracture small bodies of people, which is pretty important whenever you're talking about the Israelites as they are coming out of Egypt. Yes, there were a lot of them, but honestly, not really especially whenever they lived in small villages and small towns with each other, whenever they were not all in one place bunched up. Like, a thousand people is not a lot. A thousand people in one place is a lot. But if you have a thousand people spread out across a thousand square miles, that's a square mile per person. Not a very big population density. Communities were so small and isolated that for things that caused division to happen, you could literally break it apart to the point that not only would the community have hardship, but they could actually die. Communities could break. Building community was very important, right? Then we get to this whole section about jealousy and the spirit of jealousy coming upon a man. Let's actually, I'm just going to skip ahead real quick. Skip, 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 skip. Skip, 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 skip. You'd be surprised, but this scripture actually shows the grace of God. It doesn't seem like a very graceful scripture, does it? No. Not super graceful. It does. How does it show God's grace? Let me show you a couple different ways. Here's the first one. This is the Code of Hammurabi. 
It's a code of laws, one of the earliest known law codes that we have, that we have read from the past. And it includes instructions based on life. It has very big similarities to some of the laws of Israel. But this was their requirement. If a finger was pointed at the wife of a senor because of another man, and she has not been caught while lying with the other man, she shall throw herself into the river for the sake of her husband. We're not quite sure if she's had an affair yet, so just to be safe, go throw yourself into the Euphrates. Now, there's not much commentary beyond that within it, right? Basic assumption being if she dies, she was guilty. If she's able to survive, she probably wasn't. But the Euphrates, in the area where it was, not a very easily survivable, passable river, right? When they say throw yourself into it, they're probably not talking about slowly wade yourself in carefully. They're probably like, go to a cliff, dive in. If you make it, you're fine, right? In the one where we're talking about witchcraft later, some of the ones that we actually did in our history, they were even worse, right? Throw them into the river, and if they drown, they were innocent, right? So the Code of Hammurabi is even more graceful than what Christians used to do to people they thought were witches <laughs> at times. Yeah. They were at least saying, if you drown, you were guilty. So here's the weirdly weird thing. In each of these cases, especially that one, the Euphrates one, the assumption is you're guilty. And if you somehow survive the ordeal, then you're innocent. Right? Throw in. If you're guilty, you won't make it. If you're innocent, you will. This one is different. In this ordeal, I know it sounds weird to take water that is in a holy place and mix it with some of the dust or ash from that holy place and then take ink and have a curse written on it and dip it into that water so the ink comes off and then to drink that and we're like, oh, that's gross, right? That's weird. That can't be good for you, right? And it can't. It's not the best. I would heavily recommend don't drink dirty, ashy water. Just avoid it. But... It's also with us coming from places where we have normal, clean water sources all the time, right? Where we have access to running water that has been filtered and purified and taken care of. Uh, water in and of itself, not the most safe thing to drink in general anyway for their culture. There's a reason why wine was really popular. Because water wasn't always pure. And so to say you're used to drinking dirty water if you drink water, also put a little bit of ash in that for me. All right. Can I scrape the mud out first and then put the ash in? Is that fine? Yeah, because it's actually holy water. It's probably more pure than any other water that you actually have the ability to drink. Or having you put some ash in it. But what about the ink? That's weird. You know what ink was made of? Soot. Ash. A little bit of stuff mixed into it to make it so it retained its wetness over time instead of drying out very easily. It had a wetting agent too. But the wetting agents were usually things like fat or other things of that nature. So dip that in there and toss it in. Then take a drink of that. Says it's water of bitterness. I'm pretty sure it would kind of taste a little bitter. Would not be the most flavorful or awesome thing to drink in the world. But what's the chance it's going to kill you? What's the chance it's going to cause you physical harm? And specifically, what's the chance it's going to cause your uterus to swell and parts of your body to prolapse, right? If it's going to kill you, it'll kill you with diarrhea as water tends to do whenever it causes bad issues, right? Like, these are not things that normally happen whenever you drink water with a little bit of ash in it, right? So generally, any one of us could do that, and we'd be fine. 
it takes a miracle to make it so you're not fine. It takes an act of God to make it so that something bad actually happens. In this, the assumption is not that the person is guilty and it'll take a miracle for them to be saved. The assumption is that they are safe and it'll take a miracle to show they're guilty. Isn't that weird? That's why it's talking about the fact that it's one of the only ones that has direct requirements for God to specifically act for this curse to be put into place. Because if God doesn't act, nothing happens. You drink some ashy water and you go home. And think about this. In our culture, if there is question as to whether or not someone is having an affair, what can we do? A bunch of weird things, right? Huh? Throw them in the river. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of stuff we can do. We have ways to check and see whether or not people are telling the truth. We can look back over our message histories. We can do anything of that nature, right? What do you think we could do if someone is having a kid that we're not sure is ours or not? What can you do then? DNA test. We can actually check to see who the parent is, right? In their culture, if you have questions as to whether your kids are your kids, what are you going to do? Nothing, right? There's nothing you can do. If you are married and you are worried that the kids your wife are having are not your kids, it's not just a little bit bad. That's you literally giving up your life and your inheritance over to people that are not of your progeny, not of your family. Your name will be taken off of the earth. Your purpose will be gone. That's what they saw as what they could do to bring forth like wealth and riches into the world beyond. That's how they thought they would bless the world, the people that they actually were able to produce their offspring. And so to be stuck wondering, are these offspring mine or not? That's a pretty bad psychological place to be in, right? Not only is it a bad psychological place, but then just imagine a culture wherein there is no requirement for one to treat their wives or their children well. There's no laws arguing what is abuse and not abuse. There's nothing to stop someone from just completely hurting their family at all turns. And what happens if that person thinks someone's having an affair but has no proof of it and has no recourse to do anything to prove it? What happens? What happens to those kids? Right? God's grace is shown in the community by this occurring because it provides a way for the community to know whether or not people are behaving righteously and serving God and protecting the family. It demonstrates God's grace on the women involved because if he doesn't do something like this, then she is at the whim of jealous men. Which, if we can be honest, is not a great place for people to be stuck at even today. Right? It has grace on the children, any children they have. One of the portions in this specifically says that if a woman undergoes this trial and she's having an affair, she will never be able to bear kids again. Right? So that means that if she undergoes this trial and she was innocent, she'll be able to bear kids with her husband, right? And that means that husband can be sure that those kids are his. And so he can treat them as his own offspring. He won't treat them as bastards. He won't have to worry about whether they're his or not. 
he can just assume it. Fun things as well within this. While it shows grace on all those people, it's interesting that something else happens. It says there's an offering for jealousy that is given, and this offering for jealousy is an interesting offering because, A, it's given by the husband. Here, offer this offering on behalf of jealousy. Usually whenever someone does something wrong, what do they do? They're either celebrating or doing something wrong. They offer sacrifices to God. They offer offerings to him, right? So you think this is a time for celebration? No? He's offering an offering because he's jealous, and he needs the Lord to answer whether that jealousy is appropriate or not. Giving the offering beforehand and then passing it off to his wife to offer is basically saying, accept this offering from us, whichever of us is wrong. He is also admitting that if he is jealous unrighteously, he's wrong. And beyond that, do you know how big honor and shame were in this culture? That you were to be honorable and not shameful? The husband putting his wife to this is publicly shaming her already. Right? And then what if she undergoes the ordeal and is found innocent? What has he done? He has publicly shamed his wife who has done nothing wrong. And people will know that. Which will make him shamed. It's a big deal, right? So it's not to be entered into lightly. And if the guy is wrong, oh, everyone will know about it. And they won't like it. I want you to consider a couple of things real quick here. Yes, we can see God's grace in just the way in which he cares for women in this way, in which he cares for children in this way, in which he allows an outpouring where one can say, you know what, I don't know whether I should be jealous or not. I feel jealous. We're going to take care of this, right? He shows grace in that way a little bit. But it's worth noting that he also shows grace in other ways. His grace becomes even more apparent in the New Testament, right? Because consider this. Can you think of anyone in the New Testament who their partner may have had an adequate reason to assume they were having an affair? Flash the answer on the screen a second ago. Yeah. Joseph had adequate reason to assume Mary might be having an affair. Oh, we're betrothed. We've never had sex, but somehow you're pregnant. I'm going to do some math here. I don't think that kid's mine. Right? He was worried about it, but even in that, Joseph did not do things like force Mary to undergo this trial, which he could have at that time because this did not actually stop until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD because you actually have to bring the woman to the temple to do it. These were still ongoing at the time that Joseph and Mary were around. Joseph did not do that. He wanted to actually save Mary's face. He had it in mind to divorce her quietly right? He thought she was guilty at first, but even then, he didn't want to subject her to this shame. <laughs> so he's going to divorce her quietly. And then an angel showed up and be like, don't do that. So again, it took God's direct intervention to demonstrate that she was innocent in this case, because there was something even bigger that would make one think, oh, this one might actually be guilty. Yeah. Right? Angels show up, say, don't worry. Totally not an affair. She's bearing God. Who else? 
Can we see anyone else who was caught in some form of adultery, you know, and someone may have just brought them before Jesus, talked to them about it? I don't know. John chapter 8, I think it is. Is that right, Jake? Where are you at? Woman at the well, the woman, uh, John chapter, uh, I think it's 8. Come on, John person. Never mind. We'll talk about it anyway. It is John. It's a section that's actually disputed somewhat, but it is retained because the majority of texts do have it in there. But this is a story wherein Jesus is sitting around, and then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law bring a woman over to him who not just is suspected of adultery, but was caught in the middle of it, right? She was actually caught having an affair. A two-witness thing might actually have been the case in this case. And they bring her before Jesus, and they say, the law says we're supposed to kill her. What do you think we should do? Right? So this is a person who has gone beyond the guilt that we can see in a person who is just suspected of having an affair. This is a person who was in the affair, which in this case, super interesting that they didn't bring the man because the Old Testament would call for him to also be killed. <laughs> like, so this one is weird because it shows the way in which the teachers of the law and the Pharisees have a bias. Kill this woman as opposed to kill them. And then it shows something else about Jesus's extreme grace because Jesus, instead of answering them, wrote on the ground, started writing stuff out. We don't know what. There's some speculation as to all the sort of things he could have been writing. But he just sat there and he's just writing on the ground with a stick, basically. And then he stops and he says, uh, let you who is without sin cast the first rock at her. May you who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all stopped. And they dropped their rocks and they had to walk away one by one because they realized if they were going to hold her to this extreme uh, consequence that the law gives, they have to hold themselves to the same extreme consequences for any of their sins. And the woman is there, and Jesus looks up eventually and says, is there no one else around? No one condemns you? And she says, no, they've all left. And he says, okay, I don't condemn you either. Go forth and sin no more. He demonstrates extreme grace because he recognizes something about people, and that's the fact that we are sinful. Right? That concept where it says, may the Lord cause your people to curse you and denounce you. Sounds super harsh to us, right? May the Lord cause people to count, curse you and denounce you if you are sinful. That sounds crazy to us. So, so not cool. <laughs> so ungraceful. But then we learn this. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Yes, she would be under a curse if she had an affair, but so is literally everybody else in the world, because that's one of 613 commandments given. The other 612 are still in effect. Even if you never had an affair, you broke one of the other ones at some place. And scripture straight up says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything in that book. We are all under curse because of it. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the law of the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. She was cursed and denounced by her people if she had an affair. 
Christ was cursed and denounced by his people with no reason. He never did anything wrong. Only person in the world who could ever say they actually did follow all 613 of those purposes with perfect intent, with no issues whatsoever in them. He was perfect, completely. And he became a curse for us. He accepted that upon himself for us by accepting being hung on a cross. And so here we see God's grace even more so. Yes, a woman caught in adultery, or a woman who is committing adultery, even if she's not found out, cursed. As are we for everything else we've done wrong. We are under the curse of the fall of the world by our very inability to serve and love the one who brought us into it. But that person loved us enough, that God loved us enough, and he offered himself up as a curse that we might have a relationship with him. He took that curse upon himself. He accepted it upon himself on our behalf so that we don't have to live under its heaviness or weight anymore. The curse of sin is no longer on you because he took it upon himself. And all we need to do is go forth. Remember Christ's words, right? He says, go forth and sin no more. We just need to repent and step up and keep walking afterwards. Accept what he has done for us. Thank him for the salvation he's offered. And then begin to live more and more Christ-like as he enables you to do so by his spirit. That's the blessing of who Jesus is and what he's done. He overcomes the curse of the world so that we can have a relationship with him. He overcomes the curse of sin so that we can be forgiven. He overcomes the curse of death so that we can have life in him. By his resurrection, he has broken these things and we can have life because of him and we can live as one blessed by God because of him. Now, blessing is God defines it, not blessing is we did probably, right? We can say if we know him, we are blessed. So that's the trial of the bitter waters. That is the ordeal of the bitter waters. It's not an apology for abortion. Instead, it's a way for God to actually show his grace and protect the integrity of community and family over the sinfulness of people. And it's a way to demonstrate his gracefulness even more. Because that curse that Jesus undertook, he took upon himself. Amen. Let's take a moment and pray, then we're going to pass this over to Jake, that he can run communion for us. Righteous Father, I thank you for today. Father, I pray that you would allow us to recognize just how good and holy and faithful you are, just how much you have done, how much you've provided for us, how much you care for us, the fact that you took the curse of the world upon yourself, that you took the curse of our inability to follow you on yourself, that you took the curse of our disobedience upon yourself, and you destroyed it by your life. May you remember who you are and what you've done. And may you proclaim your goodness and your glory because of it. Lord Jesus, thank you. We love you and it's your name we pray.
So in that past summer, I'm actually really glad you spoke on that. That's a hard one. But uh, I want you to, can you keep that cursed as everyone who hung on a tree? Because I think of Matthew 10:38 about carrying your own cross. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And I think it's a good thing to keep in the back of your mind. If he became cursed for us, we're called to do what? Take up our crosses. We talked about a couple weeks ago, I preached on seeing Christ crucified. Oftentimes we feel like God is not evident in our world. We complain about he's not in our schools and things like that, when in fact, though, we're not only allowing ourselves to see Christ crucified, we're not going where Christ went. We're not going where there's suffering. We're not going where there's sick. We're not going where there's people that need Christ. We're staying in a little tight little bubble, what's convenient to us, what's healthy to us, but Christ was cursed, and anyone that was hung on a tree is cursed, and we're called to carry that cross, because in doing so, it's a reflection, it's humility. It's a reflection of the fact if you see sin in the world, if you see problems in the world, it shouldn't be that of judgment. It shouldn't be that of condemnation. It should be of reflectiveness. It should be of humility, recognizing that we need that just as much. You are able to see that because the spirit indwells in you, allows you to be holy so you can see that things aren't holy, not so you can judge it and condemn it and hang it, but that you would be a part of that solution. That you'd recognize that you need that grace too, that I need that grace too. And this is what communion is. Christ literally broke his body on our behalf, poured his blood out on our behalf. I think it's interesting. I love that passage of Christ writing in the dirt because we don't know what he wrote. But it's very interesting that what did he do? He talked about the bitter water. He talked about the ash. And what does Christ do? He writes in the dirt. There's something significant about Christ drawing their attention to what they should know. We don't know what it was, but he's drawing attention to it. And the fact that there was two witnesses, but Christ himself and being Trinity witnesses to himself, he always is witnessing to himself. And he's always extending grace within himself and to us. And so if we are to be like Christ, if we are to see Christ crucified, we're going to be broken as the body of the church, recognizing that Christ is the one that mends it, that he's the head. We're going to be poured out as the church because that is what Christ has done. And if we are following him, we're taking up our cross, not taking it as our own and being like this self-justified over these super Christians. No, we're recognizing that Christ is the one that took the burden. We are a grace to have the ability to see that curse in the world to be part of that help and that solution in the world. And that will only happen if you allow to have that humility, to allow yourself to see yourself as equal, not above, not an us versus them, but people just as needed grace as the world around us. So as you participate in communion today, we offer open communion here at City Church. And what that means is that as long as you're a confessor of whom Christ is, the dogmatic principles, that you believe that Christ lived a perfect life, that he was born of a virgin birth, that, and that's a big point, he lived a life, he didn't just die, he lived a life that wasn't worth being cursed but that he chose to allow himself to be cursed on our behalf and for his own glory and that he was crucified and that he resurrected and that he will return again. If you believe that, please participate in communion with us. We keep it up here because we believe that Christ presents himself to all of us broken and poured out, but there still is an action. You have to get up. You got to go because if you're not allowing yourself to be hung, if you're not allowing yourself to be cursed, you're not worthy to follow him. These are what he says. So take ownership of that faith. Recognize that it is by grace that we can have said faith. And please feel free to come up and participate in communion with us.
stand with me as we continue to praise our Lord this morning.